Once again, Father, we come before you as we plunge into the depths of the beauty of your word and we look at these opening verses in the book of Colossians, Lord, we're reminded of the fact that we want to grow not only in the knowledge of you, but take that which we know and apply it to life. I pray for this morning that you may open our eyes, that we may see beautiful things from your word, that you may be exalted and honored, receive all of the glory and the praise. Father, help us to remove distractions from our hearts that keep us from being focused upon you. And may this time in your word be for your glory and the honor and exaltation of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are back in Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. And we are back uh, in there after one week of uh, where we digressed to look at the spiritual discipline of Bible study last week. And I hope that was an encouragement to you. Uh, But today we are back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 in particular, uh, beginning to look at a passage, verses 9 through 14, that really speaks to the theme of spiritual vibrancy in the Christian life. And in fact, that's what I titled uh, the message uh, for today. When we talk about vibrancy, vibrancy has to do with something that is living, something that is active, something that is energetic. Uh, It involves movement. Uh, to be vibrant means that there is progress being made. In fact, the, the opposite of being vibrant is to be inactive, to be stagnant, to be slothful, you might say, to be immobile or dead, right? Um, well, we have seen that Paul in chapter 1 is very encouraged by these Colossian believers. As his Thanksgiving shows, he's thankful for the faith and the hope and the love that they displayed But now, Paul, in verses 9 through 14, is going to pray that they would continue to develop and make progress in their Christian lives. He wants these believers to be spiritually vibrant, to be active and moving forward and growing. Because, you see, no Christian is ever done making spiritual progress in the Christian life, right? Our Heavenly Father, who saved us, desires that we would continue to make spiritual progress, to keep advancing in our sanctification, Um, As Christians, we need to be careful to not become complacent in the Christian life, to somehow become happy or content with past accomplishments. You know, I've spoken to Christians who all they could talk about is everything that God has used them to do in the past and years, years in the past, and they have very little that they are doing in the service of Christ in the present. They're glorying in their past accomplishments. See, many Christians live that way as if they've kind of already arrived. They've already accomplished enough. Others of us know that we have not arrived, but we are not doing anything about it. Maybe you are sitting here this morning and you're disheartened and discouraged uh, about your Christian life and where things are, and you are very hesitant to make any progress because you are so discouraged by your failures and your past lack of accomplishments. Spiritual complacency, any way you look at it, is a major issue and one that no Christian is immune to. God does not want you and I to be complacent people. He wants us to continue to move forward in our spiritual walk. In fact, there are other places in Scripture where we are exhorted to continue to press forward. Paul does it in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. There he prays for the Philippian believers. In Philippians 1, and he says, And this I pray that your love 
may abound still more and more in real knowledge in all discernment. He says, I pray for an abounding love that you may continue to grow in your love. And I believe he's talking about a love for God and a love for others in that particular context, that they would continue to grow in their love, make progress. In Philippians chapter 3, Verses 7 through 11, Paul personalizes this exhortation to move forward in just his own personal life. And in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul, in his own life, presses on toward the prize of Christ Jesus. He's not stagnant. He's not inactive. He's not immobile in his life. The writer of Hebrews writes to those believers in Hebrews chapter 6 to press on to maturity, moving beyond the elemental things of Christianity. The point is, beloved, God doesn't want His children to remain spiritual infants, to be slothful in their spiritual walk, but to abound and to grow and to mature. Similar to a a child who is expected in normal human development to continue to grow mentally and physically and emotionally, so a spiritual person or a a Christian, if you are truly born again, you will continue to develop and grow and mature in the Christian life. And it is this passion for spiritual vibrancy and progress in our Christian lives where our prayer should be primarily directed We should be interceding for the spiritual development of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is exactly what Paul does here in verses 9 through 14 of Colossians. He wants these Colossian believers to continue to to, uh, press on forward to greater maturity and knowledge of God in particular, as we're going to see. And the Colossians were in need of this. They were in need of spiritual progress and development. Because they are succumbing to uh, and susceptible to false teachers coming in amongst them. So it is obvious that they needed to grow and to continue to press forward to a greater knowledge of God. And so Paul's implicit exhortation by way of his prayer here is that the Colossians continue on the course that they have begun. That he outlines and gives thanks for in verses 3 through 8. They are to set their eyes on God and His will for them and not that of the false teachers or what the false teachers are promoting. A type of of sanctification devoid of power, if you will. And so Paul focuses his prayer along these lines of spiritual vibrancy in the Christian life. And in the beginning of this great prayer, particularly verse 9, Paul expresses his commitment to regular prayer for them, as well as we see the specific content of the prayer that he utters for these Colossian believers. And as we look at the beginning verses of of this particular section, I want us to examine the beginning of Paul's prayer. And I find here two evident marks of the spiritually minded believer. Two evident marks of the spiritually minded believer in the example of Paul's prayer here. What we see in the prayer of the Apostle Paul is that this man was a spiritually minded Christian. And Paul evidenced his upward focus in the way that he prayed for his fellow brethren, the Colossians, as well as other churches and other believers that he prayed for. You see, beloved, our prayers tend to be very superficial, if we're honest, and often very self-centered. 
Oftentimes, we focus and we're fixated in our prayers on things like health and material uh, prosperity, or maybe even the direction, the specific direction for our lives. And those things are not bad. It's not wrong for us to ask our Heavenly Father for physical and material things or for direction in our life. We were instructed by Jesus to pray, give us this day our daily bread, right? We can pray for those basic things. But what we see in Paul's prayers and in other prayers of the Bible is a very different focus, even a deeper focus, we might say. It's not that Paul never prays for those particular things, but he prays for the deeper, greater realities that drive those things, if you will. It's not that he never prayed for material things, especially those resources that other churches needed. They were important. But Paul was a spiritually minded man who cared deeply and yearned deeply for the, for the spiritual vibrancy of his beloved brethren in a spiritual sense, which is what drives everything else at the end of the day. Well, what marked the prayers of the Apostle Paul that, should, that showed that he was a spiritually minded and upward focused man? What, what, what characterized his prayer? I want us to hang our thoughts on two of these evident marks as seen in his prayer. All right? First of all, we see in the beginning of verse 9, that the spiritually minded believer is devoted to prayer. The spiritually minded believer is devoted to prayer. Paul was a man who was passionately, you might say, devoted and committed to bringing his fellow believers before the throne of grace and interceding on their behalf. And it was a mark of his spiritual maturity. It's a very humbling thing for any of us. But think about this. Your Spiritual maturity, in large measure, is shown by the degree of your devotion to prayer. Because it is spirit, it's prayer, where you are, you do that before no one else, largely, unless you're in a corporate setting or you're praying with a, another group of believers. It is in the secrecy of those moments before God, where you are pouring your heart before your almighty heavenly Father, where your true spiritual maturity shows itself of whether you are a Christian who is dependent upon the Lord or not, whether you are devoted to a relationship with Him or not as you seek Him. So ask yourself, as we look at some of these characteristics of what it means to be devoted to prayer and some of the motivating factors that we see here in the life of Paul and his prayer, am I a person... who is devoted to prayer for my fellow brethren. Look at verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. Stop right there. Here are two terms, pray and ask, that are somewhat synonymous. The first one, pray, refers to the general overarching word for prayer, the more comprehensive word. And the second one, ask, refers specifically to to specific requests or petitions that we offer to God. And Paul says, I regularly, consistently pray for you as well as my companions. We pray for you. We continually bring you before the throne of grace. We do not cease to pray for you and to ask on your behalf both general prayers and specific petitions and prayer requests. You know why Paul was so devoted to doing this? Because Paul was always concerned for the spiritual vibrancy of his fellow beloved brethren. Nothing will drive us to our knees to pray for others more than a concern for the spiritual condition of other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And Paul and his companions were an example of devotion to prayer because they were spiritually minded believers who cared about the the spiritual stability of the Colossian believers. Yes, they were encouraged by what was going on at Colossae, but they hadn't finished the race yet, and they were going to continue to devote themselves to prayer, to bring in the needs of these other believers before the Lord. Now, I want you to notice some things about Paul's devotion to prayer here. All right? Four things in particular. First of all, I want you to note that our devotion to prayer is motivated by an awareness of God's work in the lives of other Christians. As we become aware of God's work, that the almighty hand of God, the miraculous hand of God is working in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters, we're going to be devoted and motivated to bring them before the throne of grace. He says in verse 9, For this reason also. That, that, that phrase connects us back to verses 3 through 8. And we might ask, what happened? What has Paul said in verses 3 through 8? And we've seen it. Paul has just given thanks. He's expressed gratitude for God's work in their lives. Paul is encouraged by the fact that they are displaying faith and love and hope. They are, they are evidencing the transforming power of God in their hearts and lives. And Paul says, for this reason, because I see the work that God is doing in your life from the very beginning of your birth, spiritually speaking, I am motivated and driven to prayer for you. He brings them before the throne of grace. This is typical of Paul. Whenever Paul gets excited about God's working in the lives of other believers, you know what he does? He thanks God, he praises, and he prays. That's what he does. Look back with me a couple of pages in Philippians chapter 1. I want you to see this. Just very briefly. Typical fashion in chapter 1 of Philippians verse 3, Paul gives thanks again for the Philippian believers. And I want you to see this. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. It's been 10 years since the church at Philippi was birthed, approximately. And Paul says, as, long, as often as I remember you, I thank God and I'm driven to prayer with joy, not reluctantly for you and my every prayer, all kinds of prayers, general prayers, specific prayers. And notice verse 5, in view of your participation or koinonia, in the gospel from the first day until now. So we sh- what drives me to prayer is this fellowship that we share in the gospel, in this grand enterprise of the gospel. And then he says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 6, Paul is driven to prayer because of their fellowship in the gospel, and he's confident that he who began a good work in them, in the birthing of these Philippians, is going to continue that work, and so that drives him and motivates him to prayer and to thanksgiving on behalf of his fellow brethren. Go back to Colossians. The point is this, beloved. You want a good motivation to pray for your fellow brethren? Ask yourself, what is God doing? God is mightily at work in the lives of my fellow beloved brethren here at Calvary Bible Church. What can I identify that I can thank God for? And what might I be continuing to pray that God may increase in their life? Because He is certainly at work. There is a lot to give thanks to God for, right? 
a lot to continue to keep praying for. So a conscious awareness of God's mighty work in the lives of his brethren motivated Paul and his companions to pray for the Colossian believers. Spiritually sensitive believers, spiritually aware believers are going to be looking at the evidences of the grace of God in others and be giving thanks for those evidences of grace, that fruitfulness that we see. And we're going to continue to pray for more fruitfulness because God is ever at work in the lives of our fellow beloved brethren. Secondly, I want you to notice that our devotion to prayer is not always prompted by any particular crises or unfavorable circumstances. Our devotion to prayer is not always to be prompted by a particular crises or unfavorable circumstances in the lives of others. Notice, Paul and his companions have been praying for them, he says in verse 9, since the day we heard of it. Heard of what? Well, look at the context. Heard of their conversion, their new birth, the fruit of their lives. Since God has been at work in them throughout this whole time, Paul has been praying for them and lifting them up in prayer. It was not the particular crisis of Epaphras coming to Paul and reporting to Paul that the Colossians are struggling and they are subtly succumbing to false teaching that drove him to prayer. Paul has been praying on his knees as well as his companions for the spiritual stability and vitality and health of these Colossian believers. It was not driven by a particular crisis. Before Epaphras reported his concern to Paul, Paul is a man devoted to prayer for them because they are a spiritual family to him. See, devotion to prayer, beloved, is not crisis-driven. It's not circumstance-motivated. Sure, God allows those difficulties in our lives and those trials, and part of The purposes of God in allowing trials is that we might run to Him. Absolutely. That we might show our dependence upon Him and our utter reliance upon Him in coming to Him when things are difficult. But for many of us, the pattern is that when things are going bad, that's when we run to God. When circumstances are difficult, when we want to be bailed out of a particular problem, when we want God to answer for us a particular request that may be very selfishly motivated When there's an unexpected trial, when things are not going good in our families, now we're running to God. Now we're running to Him in that particular situation. And you should. You should. In crises and moments of trial, you should seek God in the midst of suffering and difficulties. Absolutely. But if this is the pattern of our lives, and we are seeking God only when we are in trouble, it shows a certain level of self-centeredness on our part. We are looking for God to bail us out or grant us direction. And that's the only time when we come to God, when it is convenient for Him to answer those particular things. We ought to be coming to God regularly, beloved, in both favorable and unfavorable circumstances. Because we love Him, because we want to seek Him, because we want to spend time with Him. And yes, we want direction in the particular decisions of our lives from Him. You know what this unceasing regular, consistent devotion to prayer at all times requires? It requires that we live consciously aware of the spiritual dimension of the Christian life. Paul lived with a sense of God consciousness, ever aware of the fact that God was there, ever aware of the fact that the progress and sanctification, people being conformed into the image of Christ, was absolutely important. The spiritual growth of his fellow brethren was absolutely important. 
There was a higher spiritual dimension that Paul understood. And that's why he could pray consistently this way. Because he was a spiritually minded man. Spiritually aware. Spiritually sensitive. He was a spiritually perceptive individual. And thus he was driven to prayer. He had his eyes set on the higher things. In fact, he had his sight set on the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is why in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, look there. He says this. He exhorts him in chapter 3 verse 1. Reminding them of the higher realities. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul wanted them to set their eyes on Christ, on the spiritual realm. And in light of the riches that they had in Christ, in light of this exalted one who had saved them from their sins... He was to be the propelling force and that perspective of keeping their eyes on Christ to a life of holiness and purity. Paul certainly was not a man who was so heavenly minded that he was no earthly good. That wasn't the case for Paul. He was very, he was highly productive in the physical, visible service of Christ. Others could see it in his life. This absolute sold out for Christ kind of person. And people could see it in the physical realm, visibly. But he knew that his spiritual stability drove his service in the physical realm. So he prayed for those spiritual realities, not only in his own life, but in the lives of others. Because everything is driven and motivated by spiritual vibrancy, is it not? Your service, your love for others, your care for other people is all motivated and driven by a vital relationship to Christ. And so he would pray for these things. He was not content with the past accomplishments, but also wanted his fellow brothers and sisters to develop further. And Paul knew that only God can do this in the lives of others. So he would pray to God, Lord, help them to continue to grow. Help them to continue to mature. Help them to see you more clearly and savor you so that they might worship you and serve you more effectively. See, Paul was not just praying for them in crisis. He wasn't a circumstantially driven man. Sure, when Epaphras reported to him in jail that the Colossian believers are slowly succumbing to false teaching, of course, the occasion for writing the letter is that particular thing. But he was already praying for them far before that. He was not crisis-driven. He was not circumstantially motivated. He prayed for them in good times and the bad times, including the moments of extreme crisis. Thirdly, I want you to notice that our devotion to prayer is motivated by a concern for the spiritual well-being of your brethren. Our devotion to prayer is motivated by a concern for the spiritual well-being, the spiritual health of our brethren whether we know them personally or not. I want you to think about this. Paul did not personally know these Colossian believers. He had never seen them from all we know. Epaphras had heard the gospel under Paul's ministry for three years in Ephesus, and he had gone back to Colossae, and the church was birthed as Epaphras had delivered an unadulterated pure gospel. And the church was birthed. Epaphras was responsible for the birth of this church. 
Paul was not personally um, in relationship with these Colossian believers that we know, except for Epaphras and maybe some others. And yet, he and his companions, Paul and his companions, are personally interested and invested in praying for the spiritual vitality of these believers on a regular basis. I mean, you talk about a man who had a long prayer list, binders and binders. They didn't have binders in, but whatever they had, right? A long prayer list, it was Paul. He was personally invested, personally interested in the, in the spiritual health and vitality of his fellow beloved brethren. Not only in Colossae, but multiple churches, multiple places, multiple partners in the gospel. You know, we can be very selective in that we pray only for those who are closest to us. Our families, which we should pray for them. Our closest brothers and sisters in Christ. But we lack... And we constantly fall short of praying for those that we're not closest to. And in some way, shape, or form, this this neglect to pray for the church at large for the world shows our spiritual pride and arrogance. Our lack of awareness of the well-being of other believers outside of this church. You know, there are many of you who are very faithful, devoted prayer warriors. And maybe you don't work through the Calvary prayer list. And that's okay. But there are others of us who look at the prayer list and maybe in a passive kind of subconscious kind of way, we look at that prayer list and we think, well, we don't really know who those people are. I mean, number 17, I definitely don't know who they are, but I guess I'll just pray for number 17. We neglect to pray for the needs of others because we're not personally involved in their lives. And that's a separate issue. Why we are not personally involved. But for Paul, he did not neglect to pray for the church at large, if you will. Not only for the specific churches with whom he was intimately acquainted with, that he had spent time with, but he prayed for the church at large. Many of us are not only unaware of what's going on here in terms of the needs of other fellow brethren in Christ at Calvary, but we are so ignorant and unaware of what's going on in other countries or even other parts of this of, 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 the, of, the, um, of the world. We're very ignorant of that. You know, a few Sunday nights ago, I encouraged the flock to to make it a point to subscribe to a missions organization like Voice of the Martyrs or or, or buy a a resource like Operation World. These resources that, that, that basically educate Christians on what is going on in other places of the world, on how other believers are doing, how the gospel is doing in that particular country, and how you might specifically pray for those believers who are in that country who may be specifically struggling with persecution or opposition. See, we get those resources and we become aware of what's going on so that we may specifically pray as it relates to gospel progress and the spiritual well-being of other people. But many of us don't have a clue of what's going on. We're not as interested in the spiritual well-being of fellow brethren, not only in this church, but outside of this church. We must be personally interested, beloved, and invested in the progress of the gospel in other places so that we're driven to pray for them. Even if we will never see these believers in other places of this country, outside of this country, you will see them in heaven someday. And how amazing that God can use your prayers as a means of blessing to them, as a means of uplifting them. See, many of us need to expand our horizons. We are very short-sighted. Our world, if you will, our world is so small 
We, we, we create this world as individuals that we can control and that we can handle. Something that is, that, that we're, where there's comfort and accommodates everything that we want in our little world. We do not go outside of that. We're very complacent as it relates to prayer for the spiritual well-being of others in other places of the world, beginning even in our own church. Others of us tend to view everything through American lenses. We think that this, that this phenomenon of Christianity is an American thing. And we may not articulate it that way, but that's the way that we function. We think that in America, America is the place where we do it right. Well, I can tell you right now, personal testimony, that we don't do everything right in churches in America. While there are issues in other countries of the world, even in conservative circles, they have their own issues. They do some other things way better than American Christians do. And yet we tend to see or think that we do everything right. Everything is through American lenses. We must care about others in other places, beloved, expanding our horizons so that we may pray for the spiritual well-being of others that we will never see, but we will see them in heaven. See, Paul had never seen these Colossians, and yet he had been praying for them since their conversion. They had not ceased to pray for them, for their spiritual health. And though they're doing okay, and he affirms them in the opening verses, as Epaphras has reported, he's still praying for them because it was not only how they began the Christian race that mattered. Paul was so concerned for their spiritual well-being and stability that he wanted the Colossians to finish the race well. Finish well, Colossians. Finish well. So Paul and his companions come before God interceding for them that they might finish the race well. Yes, they are displaying faith. Yes, they are displaying love. Yes, they are displaying hope. But they need to finish the race. Are you so concerned for the spiritual well-being of your beloved brethren in this church and in other places outside of Burbank that it, that it drives you to pray for them that they would finish the race well? Finish well, Dave Austin. Finish well, Penny. Lord, help Penny and Dave to finish the race well. Finish well, Rock. Right? Finish the race. Finish well, Jim Stone. All the way to the end. We should be so in tune with the spiritual well-being of one another that we should be driven to prayer that way. Well, that's what Paul does. He's motivated to prayer by a concern for the spiritual well-being of others, regardless of whether he's personally involved with them or not. He's a prayer warrior. Fourthly, our devotion to prayer is motivated by a higher vision of what God is doing all over the world. Our devotion to prayer should be motivated as we become aware of the bigger picture that we are only a small part of the grand story of the gospel enterprise all over the world. See, Paul and others would offer prayers for fellow believers that they did not personally know because they understood that they were all part of the same gospel team. And it drove him to prayer. I realize that one day when Jesus returns, he, he's the one that ushers in the kingdom, right? Jesus ushers in the kingdom. But we are living in the present times in a, in, a, in a kingdom time, if you will, where we experience the blessings and the privileges in the spiritual realm of the kingdom of Christ already. But that kingdom isn't culminated yet. My question to you is, do you live... Life, and do you pray for others as a kingdom citizen? 
invested into the kingdom of God's Son. See, at the end of the day, both the Colossians and Paul, though in prison, were striving to advance the kingdom of God, and that was the highest motivation for them to uphold one another in prayer. When you realize that there are two sides to the, in this life, there is a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light, you strive to pray for those who are in the kingdom of light because you know that we are in an all-out war against the kingdom of darkness, right? All-out war. This is why Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, toward the end of the book, instructs the Ephesians with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and he uses all these alls to keep talking about the fact that they had to comprehensively at all times be praying in light of the fact that there is a spiritual war going on here on this earth. He just talked before that in chapter 6 about spiritual warfare, that we are in a struggle, a hand-to-hand combat, face-to-face combat, battle to the death against Satan and his spiritual forces. When we realize that we are in a spiritual war, we are driven, beloved, to pray for one another. That is the bigger picture. That is the bigger picture. Jesus is coming someday. The risen and the exalted Christ is coming to deliver the final blow. And we will be with him forever. But until that time, there is a spiritual warfare going on on this earth. That is the bigger picture. Does it drive you and I to pray for one another? When we realize that we are in the kingdom of light, and in this kingdom there is an all-out war against the kingdom of darkness. So do you pray? Knowing that there are believers in in this spiritual war, do you pray that way, mindful of that? We need to be asking God, beloved, to expand our horizons that we may be engaged in prayer for others because we recognize that there's something bigger that we're here to accomplish. Something much, much bigger. And so as Paul begins praying for them, we see him connecting his prayer to the previous context and, and showing us his personal and passionate care and concern for the spiritual vibrancy of these believers. He is passionately devoted to prayer. And he shows that in his devotion to prayer for them. So the spiritually minded believer is devoted to prayer. Secondly, secondly, the spiritually minded believer is deliberate in prayer. Is deliberate in prayer. And I use that word intentionally. No pun intended. Deliberate, meaning that that Paul was very purposeful. Was very purposeful, focused on the spiritual realm of his prayers. Again, it wasn't that he didn't pray for anything in the material realm. He didn't pray, give us his day our daily bread. I'm sure he did. But he was focused on the spiritual realm. And I want you to see this. Verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, and here is the content of his prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There is a specific content of Paul's prayer. That these believers may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Listen, Paul was not flippant or careless in his prayers. He was very deliberate in his specific petition for the Colossian believers. And what he wants them to do and what he prays for them about is that they would gain knowledge. That they would gain knowledge. 
And can I just tell you, there is nothing more needed in our growing, superficial, materialistic, media-saturated, fast-paced, careless society than the knowledge of God. Nothing is more needed than the knowledge of God. In a society that continues to take God out of everything and silence Him, though He can never be silenced, we need to continue to grow in our knowledge of God. This word for knowledge here is an interesting word. It comes from a word, gnosis, which refers to the act of knowing. And the verb form of the word in the Greek is the word gnosko, which means to know. And Paul does something very interesting here. He attaches a little word, a preposition, in front of the word gnosis to make it epigenosis or epigenosin. It intensifies the word. It is an intensified form of the word to know. And it means deep knowledge, real knowledge, fuller knowledge, complete knowledge. Paul is not referring to some hidden, mystical, or even elite knowledge. Paul is not talking about simply mental or intellectual knowledge devoid of heart and devotion. He's talking about a specific type of knowledge. And I want us to look at some of this. Some of the qualifiers here in verse 9, which tell us what kind of knowledge Paul is specifically praying about. Three particular um, qualifiers that I want us to look at here. First of all, I want you to notice that this is a God-entranced knowledge. This is a God-entranced knowledge. To be entranced means to be filled with wonder and delight. To be enraptured with someone or something. This is a God-entranced knowledge, if you will. A God-enraptured knowledge, if you will. That he prays for here. He says specifically, for the knowledge of His will. Of His will. Now, we often think of God's will in a very personal manner, right? We often talk about, you know, God has a wonderful purpose for your life. And we talk about God's will in that kind of terminology. We come to, to God and we want Him to tell us, tell, tell us about our future, our hopes, our dreams, about the direction of our lives, our future education and profession, who we might be marrying, our future spouse. And, and we speak and we tend to define the will of God as God's direction or specific purpose for my life. And sure, there's an aspect of that. We should seek God's direction for our lives. We should pray about God granting us a particular answer in a particular situation. But may I say to you that this is a very limited view of God's will, and that is not ultimately what Paul is first and foremost specifically praying about here in in talking about the will of God. And I want us to see this. I want us to go to a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, Just a few pages back. And I want to show you that Paul has something quite bigger here in mind than specifically just the direction or purpose of my life. Though it has massive ramifications, what this means for the way that we live and for the direction of our lives. But Paul has something bigger in mind. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, by the way, are one sentence in the Greek. One sentence of, of, of Paul just praising God, blessing God in verse 3. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He has blessed us. 
And then he rehearses these wonderful blessings as he praises God, beginning in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So he chose us. Paul praises God because he chose us. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, he says. So God has predestined us as well, by which we are now children of God through Jesus Christ to himself, all in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's chosen us. He's predestined us to be his children. And Paul praises God for this. And then listen to this in the middle of verse 5. According to the kind intention of his will. All of these things are happening according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace in verse 6, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now He's talking about the Son of God. In Him, verse 7, in Christ, in the Son of God, we have redemption through His blood. So He's redeemed us. And Paul is praising God because in Christ we have redemption through His blood, through His atoning death and sacrifice, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. So God has redeemed us through the blood of Christ and granted us forgiveness of our trespasses, and He's lavished His grace upon us, and Paul praises God for that. And listen to this at the end of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. There is the word that that, that God's will again. In verse 5, in verse 9, verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And here are more blessings. In him... Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, and here it is again, according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So God's will, beloved, in chapter 1 of Ephesians appears three different times, in verse 5, in verse 9, and verse 11, all in the context of Paul praising God for his grand purposes for creation and to restore everything in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His plan of redemption. All of God's purposes. He is talking about God's greater purposes for the world. He is talking about his great great plan of redemption. These great realities and truths that at the end of the day, we need to come to grips with. Because when we come to grips with them all the more, and we're granted spiritual insight and perception to the great spiritual blessings found in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? We are going to be propelled to live differently. That's why Paul, look at chapter 1, verse 15 of Ephesians. He, he bursts forth in prayer again now for these Ephesian believers. After having talked to them about the great purposes and the grand plan of God to restore a broken world in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 15, For this reason I too, for what reason? In light of all of God's spiritual blessings in Christ, in light of God's great plan and purposes, in light of the will of God, if you will, being accomplished among you, Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayer. Sound familiar? Colossians 1, right? 
And here's the petition, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true, complete, fuller knowledge of Him is the idea there. What specifically, Paul? Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He's saying, I want God to open your spiritual eyes so that you may see the glories of God's purposes and His will and His redemption and forgiveness found in Christ Jesus. I pray that your eyes may be opened and enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. And then he talks about the fact that God displayed that power in having raised his son from physical death toward the end of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he talks about that power being manifested in the fact that he raised sinners from spiritual death. So Paul says, I want your eyes to be opened, to be enlightened. You need spiritual perception and insight to see the great purposes in the plan of God because he's going to say later on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that's what's going to propel them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as they understand these great truths. Go back to Colossians. Listen, the knowledge of God's will refers to God's eternal and all-encompassing purposes for the world. First and foremost, that is what Paul is praying for them about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 as well, that their eyes may be opened to the will of God and His purposes and His plan, which reveals His character. He said, well, where do I come into that? Well, as you understand God's purposes for the world, they have massive implications for the way that you live, don't they? Massive implications. In light of all that God has done and all that God is doing in the world, now we can talk about God's direction for our lives. See? That is the bigger picture. That is what Paul wants their eyes open to in Colossians 1, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 15 and following, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and following, that their eyes would be open to the love of Christ. Why? So that they might live differently. So that they might live differently. They need to grasp the awesomeness of God. The grand purposes of God. So that they no longer live the same, but starkly different. They need spiritual, spiritual eyes. And I want you to note this. Before you and I can understand the will of God for each of us, we need to have our spiritual eyes opened so that we may see the greater, grand purposes of God. That He's restoring a broken world that is not what it should be. Amen? This world is not what it should be. And yet God has purposed, willed a plan in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by which He has already began restoration of this broken world back to its glorious status. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. We need to understand those bigger realities. And then we can define God's purpose for my life individually. We need spiritual perception to know God, to know His character, His redemptive plan in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this, all of this is culminated 
and accomplished by God the Father in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, all of these blessings are extended to people. In Christ is, is how God is going to restore this broken world back to its glorious state, if you will. In Christ, and along the lines of Christ's role in God's will, I want you to look with me in Colossians chapter 2. Because Colossians has much to say about what this knowledge is as well. Colossians chapter 2. Look at this. Paul, beginning in chapter 1, verse 24, is talking about his specific ministry and his sufferings for their sake. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he starts to talk about his own struggle for them and for other churches in the area who have not personally seen his face. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 2 that their hearts may be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged, Colossians. I want you to be encouraged. Having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, he says, I want you to be encouraged, bound together in love for one another. And I want you to grow in the full assurance of understanding, leading to a true knowledge of God's mystery. And ready for this? Listen to this. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself. Christ Himself. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know what Paul is saying? I want you to be encouraged. And this encouragement, Colossians, will be when you realize that all wisdom and understanding of God's will is wrapped up in knowing and treasuring Christ. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. They will find encouragement when they know that they have Christ. All the resources that they have in Christ. Ephesians made the point that all of these spiritual blessings are in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no blessing were it not for the redemptive work of Christ. He says, I want you to be encouraged. Look at Christ. You're losing sight of Christ. So when he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will, Paul is not just talking about a deficiency of general information as we tend to define in our circles. That you need to read more books of theology so that you can just know more things. He's not talking about that. He's talking about specific knowledge which consists of understanding from the heart God's character and His purposes and His redemptive plan revealed in and through the glorious Lord, risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what Paul wants them to see he wants them to get a bigger, the big picture so that they will not succumb to false teaching and to peripheral methods of sanctification. They're losing sight of Christ. So this is a, a God-entranced knowledge, enraptured by God, His character, His purposes, His redemption found in Christ Jesus. That's what this is. And He wants this knowledge to be a dominating knowledge. Secondly, this is a, a mind-dominating knowledge. Not only a God-entranced knowledge, consumed with the character and the purposes of God, and specifically culminating in the risen Christ, but also a dominating knowledge that controls their thinking. Notice this. He prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. 
The word fill here is Paul's way of praying that these believers will be saturated, completely dominated, completely permeated by the knowledge of God's will. What happens when you get a cup and you fill it up to the brim with water? Is there room for anything else? No. I keep teaching my little Chloe, going up to the water dispenser, that there's a certain point where she can't put water in there anymore. I'm still not sure she completely understands that. But once it's filled to the brim, there's no room for any more. That's the picture here. Paul says, I pray that God may fill you so absolutely and, and, and be consumed and saturated with his person and his character and his redemptive plan in and through the Lord Jesus Christ that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that takes prevalence in your life. That it dominates your life. When you're completely full of something, nothing else fits, right? Nothing else. And this knowledge of God and His purposes so fully controls you so that it fleshes itself out in the way that you live. It shows in the way that you live. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled continually with the Spirit. What is he talking about? Be Submit to the Spirit's leading. Let, let His influence be the dominating force in your life. Be led by Him. Be consumed by Him. Let Him permeate everything in your thinking so that you're, you're living righteously. The need of the hour, beloved, is for a greater knowledge of God so that it filters through in our lives and there is change that happens. And Paul adds a phrase here, containing two words, which emphasizes this change that this knowledge is meant to have. So thirdly, this knowledge is transformative knowledge. Not only is it a God-entranced knowledge, it's a mind-dominating knowledge, it's a transformative knowledge. In other words, it's going to show itself practically in the way that you live, in that your life is going to change. It's going to impact your living He says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All and spiritual govern both words wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom can be defined as knowledge skillfully applied. It has to do with taking God's word and the principles of God's word and applying them in such a way that you make right choices and keep Christ exalting priorities in your life. That's what wisdom means. Understanding has to do with spiritual perception and comprehension of truth so that it also shows itself in your ability to live righteously. That's why a person of understanding is a person of wisdom. And a person of wisdom is a person who has understanding. Both words together talk about the Christian's ability to comprehend and rightly discern the truth so as to make Christ exalting decisions, live righteously, and keep God glorifying priorities in your life. It is a transformative knowledge that's going to impact the way that you live, is what Paul is talking about here. Just think about your life. You did not always know what you know today, right? About God and His purposes and His redemption in Christ. But over the years, you've grown in the knowledge of God and His Word to understand these things. And this knowledge has changed your thinking about God and your perspective about His purposes and what He's doing in the world and your perspective about Christ. 
And the more your thinking has changed regarding God and His purposes, including salvation in Christ, the more this word-saturated thinking has taken a hold of your affections and your desires and your priorities that you have learned more and more to make wise decisions and keep Christ-exalting priorities in your life, right? That's the progression of the Christian life. It all began in your thinking. The renewing of your mind that Paul talks about in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Renewing your thinking. That's where it all began. The knowledge that Paul is praying about, if truly understood, there's true knowledge in them, will lead to all spiritual wisdom and understanding that manifests itself in holy, righteous living in the lives of these Colossians. And where does this knowledge come from? It comes from the Word of God, right? We're back to where we were last week. Study the Bible. Expose yourself to to God's Word. Study the Bible for proper worship. To know God. To know His purposes. to To see His glorious, redemptive plan in Christ. Study the Word of God to know and to worship and to savor and to serve God. We're back to where we were last week. And you say, gee, Kempis, you know, two sermons where you're emphasizing studying of the Scriptures. Are you trying to tell me something? Yes! I'm trying to tell you, get into the Word of God. Not just to read it, to saturate your thinking in it, memorizing it, meditating upon it, looking for the attributes of God and the greatness and the majesty of God and His redemptive plan in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. Get into the Word of God. You won't grow in your knowledge of God's will if you're not spending time in God's Word, beloved. No pain, no gain. All right? You won't learn to make wise choices and hold right priorities and learn to be a loving husband and a loving wife and a loving parent who points your kids to Christ. You won't learn to be a God-glorifying single person who finds contentment in Christ if you are not getting into the Word of God about those things and filling your mind with the will of God. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let... The word of Christ richly dwell within you. The idea is let it make its home in your heart. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word be be a word-saturated believer that bleeds spiritual worship and hymns and the one another's and gratitude toward God because you're so consumed with the scriptures. You and I need to pray this way, do we not? We need to be spiritually minded believers who, like Paul, are devoted to prayer and who are deliberate in praying for one another that we would grow and come to know God in a greater, greater way. Listen to me in conclusion. You and I were created to worship. We were created to worship God. And nothing else will satisfy you for eternity but the worship of God. And each of us is this insatiable desire for worship. But sin has come into the world like scales over your eyes. And you don't see that you need to worship God. And that He's created you to savor Him. And to live for Him. And to delight in Him. Because there's sin in your life and in my life. We're in a broken state. Even as believers, we don't worship and seek to know God as we should. 
Because we are not a finished product, but we were created to only be satisfied by a knowledge of God. And nothing else in the world will satisfy. Nothing. Not sex, not possessions, not all the things that you can gain in this world, not all the toys that you can have. Nothing else will satisfy that insatiable desire for worship. There are things that are counterfeit, like sex and like possessions and like material kinds of things. All of those things, ideologies, philosophies that you could pursue outside of Christ. And it won't matter, beloved. It won't matter because the only thing that can save you and that will satisfy you is the knowledge of God as seen in the person and the work of the sufficient, supreme, exalted, risen Jesus. That's the only thing that satisfies. That's the only worship that pleases God. Worship in Christ Jesus. As you give your life to the Lord, as you find forgiveness for your sins in Christ, the one who came and died on the cross for your sins, taking the full extent of the punishment of God on your behalf for your sins to the glory of His Father. Only forgiveness is found in Christ. And I pray that you would seek Him. See, sin blinds us, blinds us to who the supreme object of our worship ought to be. Almighty God, nothing will satisfy. Nothing is greater than to know and savor and worship and serve God. And I pray that none of us in here get to a point in our lives, at the end of our lives, where we sit on a deathbed and we say, I've wasted my life Because I never, ever pursued God. I never pursued a relationship with Him by faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've wasted my life. I've squandered it. How sad would that be, wouldn't it? C.H. Spurgeon once preached a great sermon. And in a particular part of the sermon, he talks about the, 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 the supreme importance of studying God and His character and His redemption. And I want to read it to you in closing. He said this, quote, The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to, the, to this master science of knowing God, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eye, eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, we say, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind and thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. 
The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst it's humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trail, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead." He was 20 years old when he wrote that. Paul prays that his beloved Colossian brethren would come to know God. His character, his purposes, and the redemption found in the glorious Christ who is to be their supreme one and sufficient one, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, Grow us in our knowledge of you, of your great purposes for this world. We remember, Lord, that all of this brokenness you will fix. And it has already started when your son came into the world to purchase us from our sins, from slavery to sin and corruption, so that we would no longer live for ourselves but for you. Remind us of the grand picture, the grand story of which we are only a small little mini story. Help us to live, Father, for something greater than ourselves. Please, Lord, I beg you, bring about revival in our hearts. Open our eyes that we may behold the the glorious Christ and the blessings that you have granted us in Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.